Hello, this is Darren Pulsifer, Chief Solution Architect of Public Sector at Intel. And welcome to Embracing Digital Transformation, where we investigate effective change leveraging people, process, and technology. On today's episode, Operationalizing Your AI Projects with Gretchen Stewart. Gretchen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. It's been a while since you and I have talked. It has. Uh, you. Uh, this is your second or third time? Third? Third time on the show? Third, yeah. I think it is the third one. Uh, we need to have you on more often. Gre- Gretchen is our chief solution or chief data scientist of public sector at Intel. And uh, Gretchen and myself um, and Anna Scott, which we've all talked to on the podcast together, we make the triumvirate of the CTO office in public sector, and uh, we have a lot of fun. And I invited Gretchen to come on today to talk about her specialty, which is data science and specifically AI. Yeah, I'm so, I'm so delighted to be here. This kind of, um, I should say, started from the fact that I'd uh, done an article that we got into Fed News on MLOps. And you and I were talking and thought, hey, it's probably a good idea to come back and uh, talk with folks not only a bit about what's going on in the world of MLOps, but you know how that fits into overall data science and artificial intelligence. Absolutely, but before we get there, Gretchen, everyone wants to know a little bit about you. So let's get your background going. Sure. Uh, so where'd you come from? Why are you here and, uh, and uh, so forth? Oh, oh I, I appreciate it. It's uh, kind of fun to advertise, but um, I think I'm a great example of somebody who continually learns and um, adapts. I honestly, undergrad is mathematics, so I'm enough of a geek and a nerd. And, um, you know, been working in the technology space for over 20 years and almost 15 of that um, in the federal space. So uh, cut my teeth and honestly really felt like I found my place where we really make a difference in citizens' lives. We really help the academic researchers. The work that we do to me is really critically important. Um, And I don't feel like I'm making some fat cat in some industry, just making more money. Um, So I really like that I'm in the public sector, but um, I have- I I totally agree with you there. I I love public sector. I do too. It's just, it's the right place to be. You feel like um, it's a job where you make a difference. Um, It's not easy. Part of the reason why I'm delighted to be working in the uh, public sector and the federal government is who has the most amount of data on the planet? That would be our government, you know? And so, you know, it's the right place for somebody who is awash in data and just wants to continue to learn more. Um, I do also have a master's in business. And then I went back to um, Harvard and focused on data science um, two and a half, three years ago, and then became the chief data scientist. So I will tell you that, absolutely can, you know, load up a Jupyter notebook and do some of the programming in Python and PyTorch and things like that. But the truth is, I don't do a lot of that these days. It really is conversations with CIOs and CTOs and what's your data strategy and do you have all the data that you need? And oh, by the way, you probably need some data from other organizations. So how do you create that governance model, etc. So those tend to be a lot of the conversations that I have. So not putting fingers to keyboard, so to speak, anymore. So I feel quite rusty. So if you ask me a Python coding Pragma specific question, 
I might. I I won't I won't put you through that. I promise. <laughs> even though it would be kind of fun. It would be fun. Because uh, you know you know me. Even though I'm not supposed to be coding, I still code because it is in my blood. I am a software engineer. Yeah. And I'm I'm gonna code the day I die. I already know it. Yeah. Well, and I started you know in software engineering too. So I I totally know what you mean. And um, it's uh it's like having another language that you know. Yeah, absolutely. So, Gretchen, let, let's talk about our, our subject today, which is really um, AI and ML ops. And what in the world is that, right? Is it the same as DevOps? Is it the same as data ops? I mean, there's a whole bunch of, everyone's throwing ops on the end of things. So let's start first off with AI and ML. What's the difference? Make this simple for us because sure. those words are thrown around like crazy. Absolutely. So um, when you think of artificial intelligence, think of it as the, uh, the big circle, so to speak, and, and think of machine learning as techniques that are part of artificial intelligence. So it's not different. It's really a subset of artificial intelligence. These are algorithms that derive their strength from an ability to learn from available data. And so primarily you're learning either from supervised or unsupervised data. There's lots of nuances, but yet that's the best way to really think about it. So machine learning and- All right, so ML, in machine language, machine learning, sorry. Yes. Machine learning is just a subset of AI because there's yeah. other types of algorithms in AI that do different things. Absolutely, absolutely. Gotcha. Yep, gotcha. Yep. And, and the real simple difference between supervised and unsupervised learning is really is the data labeled. It's that simple. Um, so if you have supervised learning, that means the data sets are labeled. That means it it is already mapped out as to what that data looks like, what's the data size, um, and it just makes it much easier to classify and predict. Where unsupervised, what you're really doing is trying to find patterns in the data. So you're really almost looking at it as how do I associate things or how do I cluster them in a way that might make them interesting? Okay, so I'm going to restate what you said so I make sure I understand because that's how I learn. Supervised means, it could mean someone sitting there labeling things. Mm -hmm. That is a dog. That is a cat. Exactly. That is a hot dog, right? We all know a Silicon Valley reference to yes. it's hot a, dog, not It's hot an dog. orange, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. Unsupervised means that the machine is learning to create relationships between data based off of finding common patterns throughout the data. Exactly. Similarities or potentially differences. But it's or differences. Be, oh, okay. Yeah. okay. Yeah, you could... You could think of it um, in ways like you're clustering information together. So it's unlabeled and you're clustering similar things, or maybe you're clustering things that aren't similar. Um, so you might think of it for market segmentation. That might be a way where somebody starts to look at markets or different markets. Um, and then also unsupervised could be relationships between, um, I'll call it different batches of information or different data sets. So, um, uh, as an example, a customer who bought this item might also buy that item. So that, that association um, could be another way to think of unsupervised learning. So, you know, 
Uh, Gosh, I mean, both, both seem very powerful. Example of unsupervised learning. Some of the information is labeled, but some of it is really just based on comments and, and information that, you know, you've input into your Netflix where it can say, hey, if you bought this or you like this particular movie, you might like this one. Yeah, I kind of hate those Netflix suggestions. Especially <laughs> after my granddaughters have been visiting and they're watching, you know, Teletubbies or whatever, all, all of a sudden I, you know, I don't, I don't really need to watch a Teletubby movie. I don't. I totally it's, get it. Doesn't. I totally get it. Then there's specific math techniques, basically. You know, if you're clustering something together, there are k-means or k-n-n, um, nearest neighbor clustering algorithms. You know, and we could get into, you know, all of those, but that's that's really from a simplistic level. That's that's really what we're we're trying well, to do. That's where we want to start first, yeah. is, is simply. Because yeah. um, we, we could spend days and days going over all the different AI stuff, but today I want to focus a little bit on the ops side as we kind of mentioned, people just throw ops on the end of everything now, which really means operations. But I think it should be more like automations. Maybe it shouldn't be op, it should be ought. Yeah, I, you know, think, that, I think that makes sense. And to your point, I think that, you know, you'll see people say DL ops, DL meaning deep learning. So that's even a smaller subset of machine learning. And that's where you have really serious graph, graph algorithms and neural nets and things like that you hear people talk about. And they've started to put ops on the end of that. So the first thing- So what does that mean? Yeah. What does that mean when they put ops on the end of that? Yeah. Well, the first thing is it's not as um, sophisticated as DevOps. So think of it as being influenced by the widely adopted idea about um, DevOps approach to creating and and customizing applications. But what, what folks are really trying to do is create a, I'll call it a set of practices to help optimize the reliability and the efficiency of machine learning designs, development and execution. So almost more of like a marketplace where you've got the ability to create and operate custom applications, but then you have those to be able to share with others. Because um, again, many of the models and the algorithms that are being used um, lots of times are already optimized and are in what people today think of as model zoos. So 10 or 15 or 20 already optimized models um, that could be all for machine learning. So the idea is that you can have these methodologies and technologies to help you streamline your machine learning models. And the best so and the best way to do that, honestly, was is with a whole bunch of tools that are either open source or specific software vendors um, have created again to make that um, creating, developing, designing, executing flow much easier. So this sounds a lot like where software development was maybe thirty years ago mm -hmm. when they first started creating libraries, right? Oh, I'm going to create this library. So everyone doesn't have to write a string class in C++. I just use the standard library. Are there standard ML models out there that I can use over and over again? Or is there a marketplace that's starting to build around this? What's, what's that look like? That's a really great question. 
And what I've seen in terms of the, the, I'll call it supervised learning, you know, you think about classification. So these are vector machine, decision trees, random forests, linear classifications. So a lot of those are math equations that have been around for quite some time. Um, another technique that's used in supervised learning is regression. So you think about linear regression or log regression or polynomial regression. Again, these are math equations that have been around a while. So many of those specific algorithms are already done and optimized and are available in tools such as Converge.io or C3AI has a really nice ML design flow. Databricks, um, SAS. I mean, so there's a bunch of vendors that have many of those algorithms that are already optimized sitting there for you to be able to do, to, to use it. And then what you're really able to leveraging that software is do that, um, that whole workflow. So think of a quick agile, hey, I've got several data sets. I would like to link these together, multiple variables. Here's the technology. Now let me see when I point it to two or three data sets that I have, uh, what the results are. And gotcha. so, those so are fabulous. You, so you don't have to, yep. you know, go through all of that. Um, Converge.io, honestly, which Intel owns, just it has a really nice graphical user interface where literally you are just mapping out, um, you know, with uh, boxes, triangles, almost think of it as a Visio kind of a diagram, just quickly lay it out and, and literally hit the go button. So this is helping me build up my AI pipelines, mm -hmm. right? Exactly. By, by your, by your saying, by um, weaving together ML algorithms and or models on my data streams as they're coming yep. up. And then there are also really great open source tools. So these are ones that the community has been developing that people add to that you can easily go to GitHub and, and download like Kubeflow with a K, K-U-B-E flow or Metaflow or Kedro or MLflow. And again, these are great tools that really help you with that, that DevOps and the, the cool thing, you know, for somebody like an Intel, where we want to make sure that they leverage the best libraries that we have, math kernel libraries and open doll or CNN libraries, et cetera, that we've already optimized. The good news is um, that's already built in. So somebody doesn't have to go and, you know, pull down specific, I'll call it, um, not only the libraries and do any recompiles, all that stuff is already done and built into some of these really nice open source flow tools. And we've talked about this on the, on the show before, a lot of AI and ML um, projects end up being science experiments where I do it once. Yeah. I get great information out, and then um, the data scientist has moved on to something else. And it's like, but you didn't operationalize it. Right. 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 So, is this where MLOps is moving to? Is because what you were talking about is primarily training or learning. But what do I do after I've learned, after my models learn? I got to deploy it, right? And actually exactly. 
provide real value. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And some companies specifically are leveraging those tools. Domino Labs is is another one that does um, ML ops, where it really almost creates that marketplace. So you've got a customer. So in our public sector, you have a customer who's working on um, sub you know, they're the nuclear subs and there's doing some object detection or some clustering classification. Well, you know, that work could be applicable in the Air Force or might work somewhere else. And to your point where people have done this work, then they finish the visualization, provide the results and move on. So the idea here is that that would really catalog it. And even some of the, you know, defense industrial base that we work with are, are adding and almost creating their own sets of catalogs internally at their own companies so that they can really help operationalize that and really build agile environments so that somebody could just, oh, okay, this is a multivariant problem. Maybe I want a couple different algorithms that I might want to leverage. And I'm going to then weight them in a different way, depending on the results or the accuracy. And I might test that out a couple times. And then all of that information would be captured. And then somebody could go back and go, oh, Joe did this great work. He weighted it 60-40 and look at the kind of results that he got. But this is the data sets that he was using. Well, our data sets are different based on what we know in those characteristics. So maybe we'll take what he's done, but we might tweak it a little, but at least there's. Okay. So, yeah. Th- this, this brings up a, a, a big concern I have actually, but it's the same concern we have with open source software with these open source models and things. How do I know that I can trust that model that someone hasn't trained that model? Maybe I'm doing facial recognition and I'm now going to use that model to do my facial recognition to allow people into my secure lab, how do I know they haven't trained it to ignore their own face? Yeah, and the truth is- I mean, how is there any way to know? Yeah, the, the truth is right now, that's part of the, I'll call it the trustworthiness and the ethical nature of what we need to do where there is now an expectation that people now document those kinds of things, i.e., where did you get that data set? Is it is it a um, publicly available data set? Is it a synthetic data set? Is it something that you maybe created on your own and how did you do that? And so you have to, as we move forward, people need to describe that. I mean, so um, this gets into honestly something that's so fascinating and interesting to me. It's really the trustworthiness, the ethicalness, the how, how can you be more responsible about what you're developing to ensure that those models have gone through a set of rigor in terms of questions and to your point, where does that data come from? Um, you know, a great example that you know of um, AI gone awry is Tay. You know, the system within 30 hours that started to become even more than you could imagine gets pulled. Um, all that great work that Joy and, and, and team are doing at, the, at um, MIT Media Labs around facial recognition. And, and, and you understand how the, that could have happened. And I honestly don't think it's re- malicious, but folks basically took data sets of 
parliament and data sets of people that were in Congress and data sets of people that are in, you know, leaders of um, companies, CIOs. And, oh, by the way, they kind of look like you, you know, and they don't, they, they aren't really representative of the globe. And again, I don't think people maliciously said, I'm going to train this model on a non, um, on, on, on something that doesn't look like the globe that doesn't have yeah, right. You know, right. good diverse representation. I'm just going to pull these data sets. Um, you know, it's interesting because China had the same issue mm-hmm. with their, and China has done uh, incredible work in AI, but they had the same issue with facial recognition because most of their pictures were of Chinese right. people. Right. And when it came to Caucasians or African Americans, it, it could not figure it out because their data set was so homogeneous, AKA TikTok. And maybe people don't know this. TikTok is a Chinese company, which means it's owned by the Chinese government. And TikTok provides more AI data sets to China than any other place. So when you're out there doing your TikTok dance, (laughs) China's AI algorithms are getting smarter. So just, you know, be wary of that. It's very true. Well, and honestly, China is one of those places that really has factories of people who are labeling the data, you know, so, you know, they, they have, and granted, they are absolutely using, you know, unsupervised data, but a lot more of their data is in those data sets. So then that also makes it more accurate because if it's unsupervised, think about it, you're trying to cluster and find patterns as opposed to you've already labeled the data and therefore you are really doing um, much more sophisticated uh, machine learning against out, you know, applying algorithms against um, that. So you're, you're, you're doing, um, and it's not better or worse, it's just different work, if you know what I mean. And, and that, yeah. that's well, honestly one of the things that Intel's yeah. been working on with some of our university folks um, at MIT and Berkeley and others in terms of, leveraging artificial intelligence to help label data and how and oh that's interesting so the supervisor is an ai that's doing the supervision right Uh oh gretchen (laughs) you're starting to scare me a little bit who's watching the ai oh an ai is watching the ai When you think about ML ops, for a long time, it, it really was that single person who was doing the work and then produce the results. And the idea now is that, okay, it needs to be a team of people and you need to have a diverse team of people. You need to have people who come at this, maybe not from the, I'm a PhD researcher, but hey, I'm a practitioner or I'm a user, or I'm somebody who ethnically has a whole different background and a different worldview than you do. And I need to be part of that. And, and gotcha. so, so in that case, the ML ops um, helps with the fusion of and coordination of those workers, data workers, I guess that's what we would call mm-hmm. them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that are, that are doing supervised uh, learning yep. uh, with the, with the operators. I, I really, that really makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, and 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 again, it's it's one of those things where, and, and you know this, it's like 
being a cloud practitioner, you know that 10 or 12 years ago, the answer was cloud. What, what's the question? And so now it's AI, what's the question? You know what I mean? And, and yet, as I like to remind people, the first conference to talk about artificial intelligence and machine learning was in 1956. It was at Dartmouth College. It was, you know, funded by the, the precursor to the National Science Foundation. But, but bottom line is, these are many of these are math equations that have been around for quite some time. And granted, there are then brilliant additional frameworks like a TensorFlow and others where you then can build from those. Um, but the truth is, there's still a lot of the basics in terms of log regression, linear regression, you know, clustering algorithms, et cetera. These are ones, again, that have been around a long time. But now, as you know, you've got the compute, you've got the storage, you've got 5G, you've got the capability to do what we're talking about literally as your car is, you know, passing the traffic light where you're yeah. able to, oh, that person's, um, that there was a silver, silver alert. There's someone missing. We know that their um, license plate is them, you know, and that you're yeah. doing, yeah, but you've done the training and now all of a sudden you've got that data and that information literally next to the technology, as opposed to having to bring all of it to the technology, we've brought the technology to the data. So it just opens up some really, really fun and interesting problems that we can solve. But to your point, then it brings up a lot more of those conversations of, okay, where did, where, where did, how do we train this? What was the original data that we used? And oh, by the way, yeah. you get as they, as you hear people talk about it, model drift. So after a certain point in time, you know, you can start to see that you need to basically retrain and that maybe you need to have the algorithms or bring in a different one or weight those differently to be able to then get more accurate information because, hey, there's even more data and more data that's more diverse, which is all good you know, increases your level of accuracy, but. So if, if I have my pipeline though, in, in my ML ops, then I can do this continuously. Exactly. Just like, so, so the movement is what I'm hearing is very much like what we went to with software development where I have continuous integration and deployment. Mm -hmm. I'm going to start seeing the same things in ML and AI, right? Yes. Or AI and ML um, where the models will be updated often as they become more and more accurate. And I, and then I can combat that model drift that I see there or, and, and I, I think I even have a podcast. I do have a podcast about ML uh, security attacks mm -hmm. because there are some physical attacks that you can play on ML uh, that are doing vision that I would like to know, Oh, that's a vulnerability update the model. So it can now detect those attacks. Um, so I love where you went with this, Gretchen. Um, I can't wait to hear more. Uh, we, we need to have you come back and go a deep dive on the different data analytics and AI techniques. And we'll schedule that one up so that we can say, hey, machine learning is good for this. Linear regressions are good for this. Genetic algorithms are good for this. Wow. Yep. We'll, 
that's that's uh, another podcast we have in the future. How's that? Sound? I think that sounds awesome because the truth is, in some cases, that's really easy and straightforward, and in other cases, that's part of the science and that's part of the art. <laughs> you know. Well, well, wait. You were mentioning earlier though that maybe AI algorithms could choose which AI algorithm to use. So, did you just get rid of your own job? Uh, I don't know. Maybe, but but I think. You might solve it, but in the end, you still need somebody to help with the interpretation, you know? And, and, yeah, no, I totally Yeah, agree. there's there's this great book, honestly, um, and I'm not going to remember uh, who wrote it, but it but Harvard, it's out of Harvard Business um, Review, and it's called Human, Human in the Middle. And, um, and it really, no, sorry, excuse me, Human Plus Machine. And it really talks about the fact that there are, ethics jobs, as we were talking about, or responsible jobs, though those didn't exist two or three years ago. And now people are starting to realize that, you know, you do need somebody who thinks about the ethics and maybe you need um, somebody who is like our senior fellow, Genevieve, who's an anthropologist, you know, so you need people with different backgrounds. And as this gets more and more inculcated into everything that we do, then you really do need that diversity and you really do need people with a lot of different thoughts and it is not a single person solving this problem. Um, I, I think that's great. Gretchen, thanks again for coming on the show. You're welcome, it was great fun. Thank you for listening to Embracing Digital Transformation today. If you enjoyed our podcast, Give it five stars on your favorite podcasting site or YouTube channel. You can find out more information about Embracing Digital Transformation at embracingdigital.org. Until next time, go out and do something wonderful.